Hey, Grace Church, it's uh, great to be with you. Uh, spring has finally arrived this week with a little bit of warmth, uh, uh, some just beautiful uh, buds and flowers, and a lot of rain. Um, also, don't forget that uh, Mother's Day is, is next week. I'm going to jump right in this, this morning because we've, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, we're a couple of weeks into this series of the Book of Acts talking about the church, a, a kingdom community of people called out by God, who followed Jesus as, as king and are filled with the Spirit. If you're just tuning in, I'd encourage you to jump into the series, go online, uh, as we look at defining descriptions uh, of the church that still impact us today. Uh, so far, we've looked at a community set apart with a mission and a culture always searching for a cause. Uh, this, is a, this is a movement from God, through God, in God, by God, centered on God. And so the question is, if I'm going to be a part of this movement, can I trust God? And we're going to be took, taking a look at that uh, today in a little bit. Uh, we've looked at the church as a community that's uniquely devoted and a culture that's unusually distracted. Uh, the church is to be uniquely devoted to learning the way of Jesus, of sharing life together, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, practicing the presence of Jesus, not just as individuals, but primarily together. We've looked at, uh, last week, Pastor Dan described the church as a community of kind orthodoxy and a culture of ideological idolatry. I don't know about you, but I think Pastor Dan might have received a dictionary for Christmas. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I know one thing, if you tuned in uh, last week or were here last week, he needs to learn his own email address. Amen? Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> uh, it was an encouraging, and, uh, an encouraging conversation asking us to live in biblical truth that's conveyed with compassion and kindness. I hope, I sure hope that that conversation led to other conversations uh, that needed to happen this past week. Well, at this point in the story of the early church, it's thriving. But like a lot of things in life, just as we're kind of hitting our stride and finding our rhythm, the music changes. <laughs> That's what happens here. They start to run into some disagreements, but even more than that, the church begins to face a period of severe persecution. If you want to get ready, uh, turn to your Bible or device, or you can watch the screen. Uh, you can turn to Acts chapter 5. You see, the, the right side up life and message of Jesus is counterintuitive to an upside down world. Jesus threatens the man-made self-created philosophies and religions and causes of a fallen and broken world. And so uh, the response to things we don't, often, we don't understand is often we, we attack, and attack it and maybe it will go away. So those who don't want to follow Jesus attacked the followers of Jesus. They attacked the church. But what did they attack it for? It wasn't for their personal convictions on leprosy. It wasn't for their political positions concerning Rome. No, they were persecuted because they were talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was the message of Jesus, period. Dan said it before, though, we, we can share the good news of Jesus without being weird. 
It reminds me of a story I, I was getting uh, several years ago. I was getting my oil changed at a local garage and I knew it was gonna take some time, but I decided to wait, so I brought some work with me. And as I'm sitting there, there's two ladies sitting across from me and there was a news channel on. It was talking about a tornado that had landed not too far from us the day before. Well, as I watched these women, they, they were visibly upset uh, by this news. Uh, one was an older woman. Uh, another woman appeared to have roots in, in India. Um, and I felt led to say something, um, but I didn't know what might be appropriate. So, you know, I just said a little prayer. I, Lord, help me to know what to say to these women without being weird or annoying or, or awkward. And no sooner had I prayed that prayer the Indian woman looks at me and asks, are you a teacher? Because it looks like you're studying. Now, I have to say I'm a little reluctant to say I'm a pastor because people just get weird about that. <laughs> I, I've had more people confess their, their lack of church attendance and, or their language, and, and I never asked. <laughs> but I, I did this time, I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. And it got, re it got real weird, real quick. <laughs> the older woman gets all excited and says, praise the Lord, hallelujah, look outside at my car. And I looked outside and there's a car that's covered literally bumper to bumper with Jesus stickers and scripture verses and crosses and fish and, and all kinds of manners of, of words like turn or burn or repent today stickers. And she goes on and on and on. And then she ends her story this way. She says, and if people are offended or don't like it, Jesus said, people will hate you because of me. And I said, no, people will hate you because your car's so ugly. <laughs> no, I, I didn't say that. Um, you know, that's not, that's not kind, nor is it necessary. <laughs> but I did think to myself, I don't think your station wagon is what Jesus meant by that. I think she meant well, but her method was obscuring the message. It was obvious she made the other lady uncomfortable. Her car was done, she left, the other woman looked at me and and she, asked, and she said, you're a pastor. What good thing do you have to tell me today? We had a, had a good conversation. The point is, sometimes we feel persecuted, but it's not because of the message of Jesus. It's because uh, our method or approach may be weird or annoying, arrogant, antagonistic, even, even mean. Sometimes we use the Bible as a bulldozer when it, it, it's the seed planted in truth, holding hands with love and kindness that brings the most powerful transformation. Sometimes what we feel is persecution really isn't persecution at all. Today in America and in many parts of the world, it's difficult for us to imagine persecution that leads to imprisonment or even death. Unfortunately, we, we usually describe what we usually describe as a persecution as being made fun of, or someone didn't like my post, or someone harassed me, or we had a difficulty getting a permit, or a small town wasn't able to put up their nativity, or someone greets us with happy holidays. Now, now I get it to a certain degree, but when we label these things as persecution, 
I believe we diminish the greater hardships of those in other countries that are truly persecuted. Those who are living under the threat of death, those forced to worship underground, those in prison for owning a Bible, those whose houses have been burnt down because the authorities found out that they had hosted a Bible study. I read one recent incident where a family learned their son had become a follower of Jesus and some of his cousins grabbed him off the street and threw him off a four-story building. Another family hung their daughter from the roof of their home. Another pastor was beaten. He's, he's left in his burning church building only to be dragged out again and, and beaten again in the street until he was unconscious. You know, all this happened the last couple of months. <laughs> we have no idea. You see, our minor inconveniences are nothing compared to the price that many in the church have had to pay over the centuries. I honestly think today we need to be more concerned about complacency than persecution in our culture. Now, I've read several books on the persecuted church, and I'm fascinated with those who have given their lives to Jesus, for Jesus. And it's interesting, Acts, 8, or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will be my witnesses. A witness, the, the original Greek word is maturas, is, is someone who tells what they've seen and heard. So many express this witness with their very lives, and, and because of that, witnesses became known as maturas, as martyrs. And I hear the stories of these martyrs, and I hear of their courage and their kindness and their conviction in the face of terrible torture for merely three words, I follow Jesus. <laughs> and I'm oft, I often wonder, what would I do? As I've read the accounts in Acts and, and thought about this conversation today, I really believe it comes down to one thing. How much do I really trust Jesus? How much do I really trust God? Who do I really trust? I remember as a kid growing up in church and singing, trust and obey for there's no other way. Simply trust him, only trust him. I think, wow, it's, it's easy to sing these things when everything's going your way, but what about when trusting God runs into inconvenience, difficulty, even persecution? How much do I really trust God? If I fully trust him, I'm going to follow his ways. If I trust him, I'm going to turn the wheel of my life in some very counterintuitive ways that sometimes feel uncomfortable. That being said, here's what I want to talk about in regards to being a called out community. The church is a community that fully trusts God in a culture that prefers its own way. You see, we live in a culture that makes decisions based on what's easier or, or what feels better at the moment. We see this when we, we choose to live a certain way that runs contrary to God's desire and design. It's easier to say yes to myself and my desires than to, to turn the wheel toward Jesus. We live in a, a culture that wants all the benefits of the kingdom without the king, especially the ways of the king. 
And so I shortcut God rather than wait for his best. I, I ignore his design and purpose so I can have what I want now. Can I get more specific? It means I'm going to call myself a Christian but sleep with my girlfriend because I don't trust God's design for sex in the context of marriage. I don't trust that God has what's best in mind for me. Why would he withhold something that makes me happy? And all of a sudden, I elevate my heart. My heart knows better than the one who created me and loves me. It means I'm going to live with bitterness and and carry a grudge because I don't trust God's design to forgive as I've been forgiven. It feels better to, to treat a person like garbage than to see them as made in the image of God. It means I'm going to spend my life pursuing what I want for my own pleasure and happiness right now rather than trust that God's eternal plan and purpose is the greater investment. In other words, if I trust God, I may have to make some difficult, counterintuitive choices that will determine the way I pray. What do I mean by that? On the night before his crucifixion, knowing the suffering that he was about to endure, Jesus prayed a very specific prayer. We read in Luke 22, 42, Father, Jesus cried out, if you are willing, take this cup from me, take this this suffering from me, the cup of your wrath from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Now think about this. I think we're really good at praying the first part of Jesus's prayer, but we're not so good about praying the second half. What do I mean by that? In other words, we're we're quick to pray, take this cup from me, take this suffering from me. God, make this easy, make this painless, make me comfortable, give me what I want. But we're not so quick to pray, yet not my will, but yours be done. God, whatever happens, I trust you. God, I believe you can deliver me, but even if you don't, I know that you're still God, you're still in control, I trust you. It's my thought that the people we're talking about today were people who prayed with conviction the second half of this prayer. Yet not my will, but God, your will be done. I trust you. So let's look at the first story, chapter 5. More and more people are saying yes to Jesus. The crowds are gathering around the apostles when we come to chapter 5, and we read in verse 17, Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now note that the Sadducees weren't trying to prevent heresy or protect the people or maintain God's honor. They were simply jealous. Why were they jealous? Because the temple had become a place of spiritual renewal And so they throw the apostles in jail. I think really, though, to get the most out of the story, here's what we need to remember. It's a little corny, but it's memorable. You see, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they were rationalists. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, spiritual beings. And so they were sad, you see, which makes the next part of the story, I think, funny. 
Verse 19, but during the night, what? An angel. An angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. He says, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. God sent an angel to free the disciples. So get this, God used a spiritual being the Sadducees denied so the disciples could preach a doctrine the Sadducees rejected. Now, again, I think this is funny. The apostles are out in the temple courts. They're preaching again, but the, the religious leaders think they're still in jail. And so they send the officers to go find them. And as they're walking through the prison, everybody's in place, everything's in place, but they get to where the apostles were held and, and they're nowhere to be found. And I imagine these leaders and some kind of arrogance were like, bring the prisoners. We want to interrogate them. And the officers were like, well, we can't find them. And then somebody comes from outside and says, well, wait, I just saw them. They're, they're preaching again just outside. And well, the, the religious leaders bring them back in for more question, and we listen to Peter's reply. And he says, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed, literally murdered with your own hands by hanging him on a tree. The Sadducees soon find out that, that keeping these followers of Jesus quiet would, like, would be like keeping a beach ball submerged in a swimming pool. When they hear this, they're ready to put him to death, but there's a really a strange turn of events that Aidan talked about the first week. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, Gamaliel pleads with them to, to come to a more reasonable decision. He appeals to history, and he says, movements founded by men die with them, but those founded by God live on. So why make, these, make martyrs out of these followers of Jesus? I think the interesting thing about his comment behind his argument is the suggestion that perhaps God might be behind this movement after all. And if it is, nothing can be done. Nothing can stop it. Well, the council takes his advice. They, they let him go, but not before having them flogged with a whip. Now, we can read right through this, but this wasn't a, this wasn't a picnic, the standard was 39 lashes, 13 to the chest, 23 to the back. To have the scars of the whip was a sign of a criminal. The apostles' response, I think, is fascinating. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, a ruling council of, of religious leaders. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ who had suffered for them. They weren't surprised by the persecution. They weren't surprised by the pain of the flogging. They're only surprised that they were found worthy to suffer for Jesus. You see, the church is a community that doesn't compromise the message of Jesus, regardless of the consequences. 
They bear the scars of the whip, but they're undeterred. They, they trust God fully and they finish the prayer, yet not my will, but yours be done. They endure the suffering, trusting God for the outcome. And yet we often, I feel like we often want the resurrection without the crucifixion. We want the gain with no pain. We're, we're surprised when persecution happens. We're, we're crushed when someone doesn't like our post or disapproves of our faith. But these earlier fo- early followers of Jesus believed Jesus when he said, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. In this world, you will have trouble. It's a fact. It will happen. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, persecution is not abnormal. In fact, it's biblical. We shouldn't be surprised. I want you to think about eight people right now. Let's count them out. Think think about maybe people in your family, your neighbors, whatever, eight people. See, the reality is statistics show that by the time you go to sleep tonight, eight people around the world will have died for their devotion to follow Jesus. In 2019, one of every eight followers of Jesus experienced a level of persecution that involved torture, imprisonment, beatings, or death. More than 260 million Christians. Missionary Nick Ripken writes this, I had always assumed that persecution was abnormal, exceptional, unusual, out of the ordinary. In my mind, persecution was something to avoid. It was a problem, a setback, a barrier. I was captivated by the thought, what if persecution is the normal expected situation for a believer? And what if the persecution is, in fact, soil in which faith can grow? What if persecution can be, in fact, good soil? When he was visiting a group of Russian pastors who had been imprisoned and tortured for preaching Jesus, he's intrigued by their stories and he asks them, like, hey, you guys need to write these things down. Write out your stories. Write a book so other people can can read your stories. Their response was surprising. One of the pastors looked at him and said, Son, when did you stop reading your Bible? All of our stories are in the Bible. God has already written them down. Why would we bother writing books to tell our stories when God has already told his story? If you would just read the Bible, you would see that our stories are there. For us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. It's the way things are. There's nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably always will be a normal part of life. They trusted God's unfolding story. And we're willing to pray, yet not my will, but yours be done. They trusted God's plan, even if it meant suffering. There's come to chapters six and seven, we read the story of Stephen in the midst of a disagreement about who would serve the widows so, so the apostles could continue teaching. Stephen is one of seven chosen to care for these widows. Now listen to the, the description that Luke gives Stephen. It says in verse 8, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. 
Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These, man, these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Well, one of the places uh, of Jewish worship was the synagogue of the freedmen. It, it was founded by Jews who had been slaves of Rome, but had been set free. But I think this is interesting. It's interesting, the capital of Cilicia, one of the provinces mentioned here, the, the capital was Tarsus. Who is from Tarsus but a man named Saul? Just realize that Saul was among those disputing with Stephen. And we see that God is already planting seeds of truth in Saul's heart. They don't know how to deal with Stephen, so they can't combat or they can't question his message and character. So they hire some false witnesses to attack his message and his character. When asked if all the charges are true, Stephen takes the next 52 verses to review the history of the Jewish people and their habit of rejecting and killing God's prophets. And he concludes by asking if they're willing to get on board and follow Jesus or will they reject the Christ like they've rejected everyone else sent from God. Uh, he actually gets a little fiery here at the end. In verse 51, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't go over well. As temples flare, Stephen, uh, God gives Stephen a vision, and he looks up and he sees the glory of God and Jesus, the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God. And he tells them what he sees, and they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so you get the picture, these respected religious leaders descend on a helpless man who had been in charge of feeding widows. And they take out their rage with every heave of every rock and stone that they can find. And Stephen dies a horrible and painful death, pummeled by rocks, crushed by stones. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Stephen lost his life that day, but as a Roman historian notes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Stephen is the first of, of many, many followers of Jesus who would give their life for the good news of Jesus. From here, the persecution increases, and, and as a result, the message of the good news spreads even further. The church is a community that knows it's a part of God's greater story. There's no way Stephen knew when he was flipping pancakes for the widow's breakfast that he'd never see the sun set that day. There's no way he could have known this was the day he would leave an everlasting mark on the church. 
and God would use his life and death to continue the broaden the ministry of the church. He didn't know that this would be the day that he would see Jesus face to face. Stephen made his mark on this world and was used by God because his focus was where it needed to be. He trusted in God. He was, he was fully dependent on the living God. He knew why he did what he did and who it was for. It wasn't for himself. It wasn't for the apostles. It wasn't for the church, but for the living God. Reminds me of a story Pastor Stanley tells about his dad, Pastor Charles Stanley, when he was up for election to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Apparently, he was running against another man who, who just had it out for him. And so there's a press conference, and they're, they're seated shoulder to shoulder next to one another. And the man just starts to rip into Pastor Stanley, making all kinds of, of dirty accusations and insinuations. It was, it was nasty. When there was a break in his rant, a, a reporter then put the mic in front of Pastor Stanley and, and asked him, if he thought he could win the election. And just about everybody in the room thought, man, this is his chance to retaliate. Man, he's going to get this guy good. They, they thought he should defend himself, but this was his response. If I win, I win. If I lose, I win. Because my responsibility is to be obedient to God and to trust him with the consequences. And that's all he said. <laughs> it's a win-win either way because I trust God with the consequences. It's really all he needed to say. <laughs> it was clear who was full of the spirit and wisdom at that press conference. The other man's actions toward him didn't matter as long as he knew why he did what he did and who he was doing it for. And by the way, it made a profound impact on his teenage son who was standing right behind him. You see, those who have been martyred in the name of Jesus, those who have shown godly character in the face of, uh, of accusation and opposition, those who make their mark in the world for God are those who have settled once and for all why they do what they do and who they're doing it for, and they trust God fully. They realize, like Stephen, that it's not about, about God being a part of my story. It's about me being a part of his story. There's more at stake than just my temporary comfort in this world, my own appetites. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves. When we realize that, we, don't, we no longer have to live afraid. We trust God's plan and, and count ourselves privileged to be a part of God's ultimate purpose. So I'm no longer concerned about who's for me or against me or what they say, but that I live a life committed to Jesus, living with a greater concern for who I'm living for. And it's when we get to this point that we're able to pray, yet not my will, but yours be done. The result, Acts 8, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. They didn't blame him. They, they mourned for him. They respected him. 
But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Like a, like a wild boar, Saul tears through the church, seeking to destroy every trace of community and faith that they had together. He scatters the people and seeks to destroy their families and, at home, and homes. At this point, the life of the early church is being radically challenged and changed. In a short period of time, they, they lost their key leader. They lost safety and security. They lost close community. They lost their close contact with the apostles. And for many, this looked like the end of the church. See, the thing is, had the church been a cause created by men, it might have been destroyed. However, because it's sparked and sustained by God, it flourished. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The mission was expanding. It's interesting to note in the original language, the word scattered is connected to sowing seeds in a field. God was sowing seeds, scattering the message of Jesus throughout the region. And so I, I like how someone has summarized this. God used persecution from the world to scatter the church into the world so that the church could bless the world with the good news of Jesus. Here's what we know. The church is a community that is resilient and adaptable in the face of adversity. We can be resilient and adaptable, adaptable because we know this is God's church. It's not mine. It's his I can trust God for the outcome, even when I don't understand. Now, we don't have time to, to go through it, but I encourage you to read chapter 9 sometime today. It's a pivotal part of, of our story. It's a pivotal part of, of the book of Acts. God changes everything when he takes the principal persecutor of our story, Saul, and radically transforms his life. As he's on his way in his mission to destroy the church, Saul meets Jesus, and his life is forever changed. You see, Saul wasn't just persecuting individuals and families in the church. In verse 5, after Saul sees a light, he hears a voice, and he asks, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And all of a sudden, Saul understands what Stephen was talking about and realizes that the church is uniquely tied to the life and presence of Jesus. He became a follower of Jesus and the greatest advocate for the good news story of Jesus that the world has ever known. God redeems his religious passion and turns it into a passion for Jesus Christ and the church. And when God's truth comes into our lives, we, we must rearrange our priorities around Jesus and join him in what he's doing, just like we see in Saul's life. And I believe this comes from being able to pray, yet not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Think about this as we go back and just rehearse all that's happened. It was because of, the, uh, of church trouble that there was a need for some people to serve the widows. And because of these servants, Stephen emerged as a leader. And because Stephen emerged as a leader, he found an opportunity to begin preaching. And because he began preaching, Saul of Tarsus heard the message of Jesus Christ and, and pl it planted a seed of the gospel in his heart. And because uh, Saul of Tarsus got stirred up, Stephen was put to death and the church was scattered. 
And because the church was scattered, it went to Antioch of all places. And, and out of that church, many trained and equipped teams went out into the world to share the message of Jesus. But it didn't stop there. Saul, renamed Paul, is brought into the faith because of Stephen's death. And because of Paul, we have churches planted all over Asia and Europe. And because of them, we have 13 letters of Paul that make up most of our New Testament letters. Because of Paul, we have Luke and both his gospel account and this biblical history, this record of the early church, all because of persecution. Do you trust God? Are you able to pray and live in a way that reflects the second half of Jesus' prayer, yet not my, my will, but yours be done? I just want to point out one last thing. Chapter 9, verse 31, it's, it's kind of placed in the middle of so much action, it can be easy to miss. But it says this, And the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. You see, with Saul no longer leading the charge and some changes on the political stage, the church, is, as it's now spread over several regions, experiences a time of peace. But what we have to understand, it was a time of peace, but it wasn't a time of complacency. It says the church was strengthened the followers of Jesus were, were, were maturing in their faith. They weren't taking it easy. They were equipping and training and teaching and serving and loving so the church could be strengthened and built up. And it was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. That during this time of strengthening, the, the Holy Spirit was coming alongside to comfort and encourage these believers. You see, it wasn't just an external peace. It, it was a peace and security that comes from walking in the spirit by living in obedience and leaning on him. The last thing they did, they lived in fear of the Lord. Yeah, I think sometimes we, we skip this because we're not sure what it means. And we might say, well, I don't fear him, I love him. <laughs> but, but I think they really go hand in hand. See, the fear of the Lord is essential to trusting God fully, loving him fully. Psalm 89, 6-7 describes it like this, For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. In other words, in the counsel of the holy ones, God is not just another holy one. He's the holy, holy, holy one. You see, God is holy other, set apart. He's different. He's complete. And you think, who or what can compare to God's greatness and power and majesty? It would be like someone saying, hey, I'd love to see uh, pictures of the Niagara Falls, and, and you go show them your, your outdoor faucet. <laughs> or someone saying, man, I would love to see the Amazon rainforest, and you take them to Dayton Nursery. A bucket of water to the Atlantic Ocean, and sand, nothing can compare to the Lord. The Lord is awesome, infinitely holy, infinitely powerful, ultimately wise. He can, he's, he's free to break in with indescribable, heart-stopping abruptness and power whenever and wherever he pleases. You see, the fear of the Lord is what the disciples felt when Jesus calmed the storm with a word. 
The fear of the Lord is what people experienced when he called a dead man to life out of the grave. The fear of the Lord is what Saul felt when he meets Jesus on the road and asks, why do you persecute me? How do we respond to all this? You see, I think we sometimes make God small. And we elevate ourselves and we trivialize his way. We trivialize his instruction and design. Instead, the fear of the Lord is an ongoing attitude of my heart that causes me to choose over and over and over again to obey God, even when it might be easier to do something else. We make these choices every day. But I make that choice because I love and fear God and live in gratitude for all that he's done. Because of this relationship, I live with an understanding that ultimately his opinion about my life is the only thing that really matters. Because they lived in the fear of the Lord, they trusted God. Because they trusted God, they could follow wherever he leads. Do you trust God? Do you fully trust God? I pray that we would also be able to pray the second part of Jesus' prayer, yet not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you as we, as we look back and we see these witnesses, these martyrs, we see their faith, we see their courage, their confidence, and we see their compassion. Lord, I pray that it encourages us today. Father, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can trust your will. Thank you that, that we are comforted by your character. We're comforted by your presence with us. Lord, we thank you for all of this. And Lord, we pray, not my will, but your will be done. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.